With wedding season approaching and one of Tanager's partners looking forward to his own big day, we thought it would be fun here at Tanager Talks to explore the topic of British versus American wedding traditions. To do this, we've asked Dominique Douglas of Stylish Events, one of the most experienced wedding and events planners in London, to talk to us about planning cross-cultural weddings. Dominique, BBC America ran a story recently about transatlantic weddings, outlining the challenges when two cultures try to create an event where both parties, both families, and both pairs of mothers are equally pleased. In your experience as a leading wedding planner, how would you counsel a couple trying to meet this high hurdle? Well, my first piece of advice is don't panic. Um, it's actually my first piece of advice to any couple getting married, whether it's a cross-cultural wedding or not, because planning a wedding should be an enjoyable experience. So don't put too much pressure on yourselves in the first instance. Try and relax and try and design a day, whether it's in America, whether it's in the UK, whether it's somewhere else, that you're both going to enjoy and enjoy the process of planning your wedding. So that's my first, don't panic. And actually, I think joining two cultures in a wedding is some of the most beautiful weddings I've organised have been that, whether it's been English and um, English and Indian, whether it's I did a Swedish and English wedding last year. And you can actually involve the best bits of each culture, the bits of the wedding day that you actually really enjoy and kind of throw out the bits that you don't really enjoy to do. So my suggestion would be, in the first instance, that the bride and groom sit down together alone, no family, no bridesmaids or best men or other people who want to be involved, just the two of you, and start to make a list of the things that you really want to see in your wedding day. Talk about the different cultures and what you've seen at weddings that you've been to. What did you like? What didn't you like? And then prioritise that list. What are the most important things? So the things that you'd really like to see on that day. It may be that you, one of you really wants to have a church wedding and that's the end of it. You know, that's the most important thing to you. It may be that it's got to be in the beach, near the beach or in the sun or something like that. So find out where your priorities are. It's almost, I call it your, what's your dream list? So where is that dream wedding? How do you perceive it to be? Once you've put together that list, then involve your families. Then sit down, either over dinner, or if everybody doesn't live in the same country, maybe a Skype chat, and explain to them this wish list that you've got. Hopefully, because you've shown them that you've done that planning stage, they'll kind of trust you that you're, you're planning a wedding that you both really want. But you need to choose your battles. And if your mother says that she really wants to do a reading at the ceremony, which is a poem that your great grandfather wrote in 1861, then let her do it if that's really important to her. So choose your battle, say yes to that. But if she says she, you, you must wear a green gown down the aisle, say that's where I draw the line. And by giving and taking, hopefully it's an enjoyable experience for the whole family. That sounds like very good advice. Um, 
Now let's get down to some specifics. We understand that you just finished co-editing the US version of Wedding Planning for Dummies for the UK market, which is due out on the 25th of April. In working on this project, what were some of the differences between the two traditions that struck you and which of the differences do you think could cause the biggest headaches? Well, the thing is, Kate, for me, um, the older I get, the more I realize that different cultures and different religions have actually more in common than they, than they do differently. Um, and and I, I really mean that. I've done Jewish weddings, I've done Catholic weddings, I've done Seventh-day Adventists, I've done Hindu weddings, and I see the similarities more than I see the differences. Everybody wants to have a great day. That's first and foremost. So. Um, the main differences that I found, I did actually find a lot of language differences, which is okay. unusual considering English is supposed to be both our first languages, but there were some language differences in the way we describe things. Um, for instance, Americans tend to call um, hors d'oeuvres what we call here canapes. Right. <laughs> Simple as that. Um, the drinks after the ceremony in America is generally called cocktails. We call that the drinks reception. In the UK, we generally don't call something cocktails unless we're actually serving cocktails, which is more often than not served after dinner in the UK, after the, uh, the dinner happens. Um, the dinner, the actual dinner that you all have seated, is called dinner, more, more or less, in the US. Here, it's often called the wedding breakfast. Um, and that's a tradition way back from... Regardless the, of yeah, what regardless, time of day. Regardless of whether it's breakfast, lunch or dinner, often it's called the wedding breakfast. Now, that is a very old-fashioned tradition and it comes from... Um, years ago, you couldn't get married uh, until, after 12 o'clock in, in the UK. So that's where your general, your first meal was breakfast. And also it, it sort of symbolizes the breakfast being a, a break of fast. So it's the first meal you share together as a married couple. But the term is sort of dying out even in the UK now, although for a very formal wedding, you often see wedding breakfast um, in the UK. And then, of course, um, what I did notice in the book is that um, Americans do tend to have a lot more events around the wedding. Um, so um, they will have a bridal shower. They will have a formal rehearsal dinner. They'll probably have a brunch the day after the wedding. Um, and so th there's lots more going on, whereas in the UK, traditionally, it was just the wedding day. But I think the more... Um, films that come out and brides see all these other traditions there's also the reality shows that are on uk tv now actually those sort of traditions are starting to come into the uk it's also a really great thing if you are um, if you are having an american english wedding is to perhaps give your american mother-in-law for instance one of those things to organize and though so even if you're having it here you could give her the rehearsal dinner to do or the brunch to do and she could make that as american as she likes so and which would be a lot of fun for your english guests as, as well to attend also there is also this perception that um, american weddings are bigger um, i think everybody thinks that everything in america is bigger <laughs> um, so 
that's what I found that people thought um, but actually in my experience and perhaps it's just because I'm a wedding planner so I tend to get involved in big weddings um, UK weddings can be pretty big as well um, I actually did read the article on the BBC America and one of the things that she mentioned is that often um, the bride in American weddings will will go down the aisle first and in the UK she'll go down last and um, Again, I've not seen that really. I've seen brides make a decision about whether they'll be first or last, depending on a couple of things. The size of the venue, how big is that aisle? How many people can you get down in one go? The size of your wedding party. Some people just have one witness each, a bridesmaid's best man. Some people have every niece and nephew they've ever had in their lives. So they have like bridal parties of 18 and it might be better if everybody goes down the aisle before you and also your dress if you have a dress with a lot of detail at the back you may want to go last so that you can really take advantage and everybody can see you go down that aisle so that's not really something I've seen as a UK US rule but probably the biggest thing is that um, there are quite strict rules in the UK about where you can get married. Um, again, people have probably seen in a lot of US films and TV series, people get married in their backyard with a, a, a religious person or a justice of the peace. You can't do that here in the UK. You just can't get married anywhere. And you certainly can't get legally married at home in the UK. You have to get married either in a religious building a licensed venue or at a registry office. They're the three things that you can do. A religious building, obviously Church of England, in a synagogue, that uh, in, in a temple. Some religions allow you, when you get married in the Church of England, for instance, you are legally married. And so you can just do that one ceremony. Other religions, you still have to have a civil ceremony as well. For instance, Hindu. So and and um, Muslim and things like that. So you would, you may have your temple wedding, but you would still need to get legally married by a registrar, either in a registry office, or you book a registrar to come to a licensed venue. And in the book, we actually discuss this because I think people think that you can just sort of say that's where I want to get married. Now you can also, if you really wanted to perhaps your parents have a beautiful garden and there's enough room for a marquee and for 150 guests and that would be lovely but you want to have a proper ceremony one of the ways to do that is to have a humanist or a celebrant come and get you get help you get married and it's it's not a fake marriage I don't want to call it a fake marriage but it looks for all intents and purposes to all your guests that it is a legal marriage but it isn't actually a legal marriage, you would still maybe the week before or the day before take a couple of your friends and have to go and get legally married at a registry office with a registrar and get legally married there. But humanist ceremonies are really nice because actually you can combine so many things. You can make your ceremony so personal to you. One of the things about a civil ceremony is you can't really use anything religious in a civil ceremony. So you can't have Bible readings. You, you can't have um, uh, somebody do scriptures and things like that. And then vice versa in a 
a religious ceremony, then you have to use things from the Bible and things like that. It may just not be your thing. Mm. But in a humanist ceremony, you can do whatever you like, but you still need to be legally married. That's really important. Great. Um, in most transatlantic wedding situations, at least one partner's friends and family will be traveling very long distances to attend the big event. And you've got lots of experience with destination weddings. Um, what are some of the things that a couple should be thinking about when long distance travel is involved? Well, I think the first big decision you have to make is where. Where are you going to get married? If it is, if, if one of you is from the UK, one of you is from the US, which side of the Atlantic are you going to get married? Um, and I sort of think about five things that influence that decision for you. Um, and hopefully, once you've read these five, uh, heard of these five things, then you'll start to plan your wedding day and figure out that dream. So where are most of the people? That's the most important thing. Where are most of the people that are on your guest list? If they are in the US, um, where most of your family are, then you might consider having it there. Because there's a cost factor involved, obviously, from your guests attending your wedding and how big your wedding is. If your wedding's only 20 people, then that's fine. I would go where those 20 people, for the most part, live. I actually had this issue myself because um, I'm originally Australian. I've lived here for 23 years. Um, and when I got married in 2000, my, all my family lived in Australia, but of course I lived here and my husband lived here and his family lived here. So it was a really big decision for me. And the decision was made that most of our friends, I'd lived here 10 years by then, lived here. So there would be the least amount of people traveling. And of course my family didn't mind traveling for my wedding. Um, so that was, that was how I made my decision on it. There also might be elderly relatives. You know, can granny actually Make, make that fine. Yeah, so you know you might have to consider that. The second consideration is who's actually paying for the wedding. Um, is it you? And nowadays, I would say probably well over seventy percent of my clients are actually paying for their wedding themselves. That's interesting. Yeah, it, it really depends on their age, their profession, that sort of thing. But on average, my clients tend to be sort of twenty-eight to thirty-two, thirty-five. They've They've been to university, they've started their careers, they're in a very prominent place, and they can afford to do their own wedding. Um, and they want to. Generally, the person who pays has the most control, so they want they want to do that. Um, and their parents have probably helped them through university and helped them in so many other ways that they want to do that as a, as a gesture, really. Um, but it's not a hard and fast rule that. So, you know, if, if your parents are paying and they live in the US, it doesn't necessarily mean you have to do it in the US, but it will be easier if the person writing the checks is actually in the country where you're having the wedding, certainly easier. The other thing is, um, I would suggest if you're not going to be in the country where you're organizing your wedding, so if you live in London and you're having your wedding in the, the US, can you afford a wedding planner? in your budget. Have you got enough money for that? Because it will be a real advantage to know that you have effectively an agent running around, finding new venues, booking the florist, making sure everything's going to be perfect for you in the country where you're having the wedding. 
Um, so if you can afford a wedding planner, I would strongly suggest you do that for a destination wedding. And it may be that you hire two. Now, that may sound extravagant, but I was organising for a London couple. They were getting married in Italy. And what we did is we I worked with jointly with an Italian wedding planner. So she spoke Italian, big advantage. Um, she also, she could actually do all the venue hunting and find them the perfect venue. And they flew out there and met her and she they did the venue hunting with her. And then I was in charge of the invitations, uh, making sure the guests could fly out, all the accommodation. I was helping with the bridal attire, all of those things there. And then I actually only flew out, I flew out twice, once to see the venue that they'd chosen, meet all the suppliers, and then actually for the wedding. And the two of us managed the project together. We split the fee. So it didn't actually cost the client any more because we were doing half the work. So we split the fee. So if you can afford it for a destination wedding, I would recommend it. Some destinations you don't need it if it's a resort because they may have a wedding coordinator there. A follow-on question: Can um, what are the economics of a wedding planner? I mean, is it a percentage? Is it how do we charge? Yeah. Um, there's two or three ways that wedding planners charge. Um, for the most part, if we're doing the full wedding planning service, um, we charge a percentage of your budget. So most people have an idea of around about what they want to spend on their wedding, and if they don't, they should have you must get that the, uh, uh, as well as the, the venue and the dream you need to know how much you've got to spend on your wedding these are two things that go hand in hand so people say to me i've got around about forty thousand fifty thousand sixty thousand sometimes ten or fifteen thousand it doesn't really matter what your budget is but what i found is that no matter what the budget is whether it's ten thousand hundred thousand or a million Everybody wants value for money, no matter who they are. Sometimes, actually, if they're spending more, they're more conscious of the costs because they really want to make sure that they're getting value for money for their wedding. So for us, um, our minimum fee to do full wedding planning, for instance, is for a £60,000 wedding. So our minimum fee to do the full wedding planning, working with the client day and night, unlimited hours from start to finish is £6,000. For some wedding planners, it can be less than that. For some, it can be more. It normally goes by how many years they've been in business, their experience, what service is included. So that's full wedding planning. Then there's um, what we call getting started. So it might be just helping a couple find a venue, put a, a budget together and get their invitations out. And for couples that their budget is say 10, 15, 20,000 pounds, it's a really good service because they get to use a wedding planner um, and get organized. And we're working with a couple at the moment who have for two years been looking for a venue and they realized they just weren't getting anywhere. They had such busy lives. They were looking at a few things. They didn't like them. They didn't have the time to do the research. They came to us and we started working with them a month ago. We now have booked the venue. Yesterday, we booked the venue. So within, Congratulations. within one month of having a wedding planner, they've got yeah. a venue booked. It concentrates the mind. You're paying somebody to do it. We come up with all the, 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 the things for them to look at based on their ideas. So, and they've hired us for just two months. So we're now getting the invitations ready. And then once they've, we've got to that stage, they go off and organize their wedding themselves. Now that cost is um, about 500 pound a month. 
So it's very economical. And the final stage is when you just hire a wedding planner to help you at the very end. And it's often called an on the day service, but it's never really on the day. We get you, we couldn't just turn up on the morning and say we're organising this wedding if we had no idea. So um, on the day service for us, it's uh, the final six weeks. It can be final four weeks for some clients. And it's a very, very economical way of you having a wedding planner involved. Again, for a sort of 20,000, 30,000 pound wedding, particularly if you've got a marquee, you've got so much going on, you know all, everything you want, you've already booked everything, all the guests are coming, but who's going to do it on the day? Who's going to do all that running around? Who's going to make sure it's perfect? And so wedding planning has really come on from on the day service and we manage that whole project for them. And that cost varies depending on the wedding planner from about a thousand pounds to two thousand pounds. Also depends on how much you've actually organized and if they really have to perhaps do a whole section. Sometimes people don't have the alcohol organized or the accommodation and things like that. We charge £1,500 for that service and we dedicate ourselves to you for six weeks. So there's lots of different ways to suit different budgets. It's really helpful. Um, and it sounds like a, you know, a smart way to uh, ensure that you get um, the wedding and the day that you want without driving yourself crazy. Well, um, I hope so. I mean, you should be the bride you one should be enjoying your day and we always hope that the bride feels comfortable with us trusts us that's what we're trying to build a relationship of trust with our brides so that they can have their hair and makeup done and be sipping champagne with their bridesmaids and we're downstairs making sure everything is perfect for them after the bride doesn't actually see that ballroom or that dinner room until after the ceremony because the first time she appears is coming down the aisle so she doesn't see that and what we always make sure that we do is after the ceremony perhaps after the uh, when the guests are at the drinks reception the photographs are over the formal photographs we always bring the couple down to the, the the ballroom or the marquee or wherever that main dinner room is and we take them in just the two of them to have a look at their dream it was their originally their dream that we've created for them and i have to say after 12 years, the thrill is exactly the same for me when a bride walks into that room and goes, oh, it's perfect, you know, and you sort of, you get that same thrill every time. That's the biggest joy of what we do, helping someone create that dream and make it perfect for them. And they've enjoyed it. Their families enjoyed it and they've enjoyed it. And that, that's the joy. Of, and I think most wedding planners feel that, most of them. This is not sort of an altruistic we're never going to be millionaires being wedding planners. We do it, A, because we love it, and B, we're kind of romantics as well. So we love creating things and seeing happy days in someone's life. That's great. Dominique, we've learned a lot in a short amount of time uh, about weddings, uh, cross-cultural challenges, wedding planning, um, and I want to thank you for being pleasure. on Tanager Talks. Thank you.